in the Gospel of John chapter 5 with a story that I'm sure many of you have heard before about a miracle of physical healing that Jesus performed on a man who had been sick for 38 years. John chapter 5 and verse number 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, of blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first, after the troubling of the water, stepped in, was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. And a certain man was there, which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. When Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, he saith unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? The impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man, when the water is troubled, to put me into the pool. But while I am coming, another steppeth down before me. Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made whole, and took up his bed, and walked. And on the same day was the Sabbath. Today we're going to talk about the crisis, uh, and begin the series that way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. Thank you for the way that you work in our lives. And we thank you that the scripture is so clear and so plain about your love for the human race, your desire for each of us to be redeemed. And I pray that your grace would work in our lives once again this morning. Help us to be attentive to your word. And we thank you for these things. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. 
thank the young people for that. Yeah, appreciate it, the way that our young people minister here at Centennial and do a, such a terrific job. Many of them are out helping right now in, in other classes and, and appreciate our mentors who work with our youth as well. Yeah, as we get into this series today, there's a lot of things to think about that relate to fairness. We hear a lot about it in the 21st century. Um, just to list off a few that maybe you hadn't thought of initially when I said the word fairness. We count on equal opportunity employment to provide people a fair chance to get a job. Um, we have affirmative action to make sure that we're fair as a society on who goes to college and who has certain opportunities. Many states have special anti-discrimination acts that have been written into their state laws. The Fair Labor Standards Act makes sure that laborers get paid a minimum wage and that they get treated a certain way. And if you get paid, paid minimum wage, I'm sure you're thankful for that act because it's raised your pay the last few years. Um, there's an Equal Credit Opportunity Act to make sure that credit is available often to people who shouldn't have credit. And that's what creates our financial crisis because we have people with credit who shouldn't have credit. Uh, the Civil Rights Act rightly and legally took away discrimination against people based on race or color or national origin. The Equal Rights Amendment uh, has evolved into much more than it started to be which was uh, suffrage, a, a woman having the same voting rights as men. And now it's become uh, much more than that. And in fact, it has changed society in a big way with watchdog feminists who are making sure that all working women, uh, except apparently some conservative women, get treated fairly. And, and so this is the equal rights movement. Uh, you might have noticed in recent days, if you pay attention to the news at all, that the homosexual movement has been demonstrating and loudly pushing for the right to have marriage be something different than what it's been for thousands of years. And if you don't agree with them sitting here this morning, then you're not fair. And that's really what they think. Um, Title IX, I don't know if, if any of you remember Title IX. Um, many ladies in here maybe have benefited it from... Uh, from back when it came around in 1972. Um, how many of you were born previous to 1972? Can I just see a show of hands? All right, so, so quite a few of you out there. But uh, Title IX ensured that if men could play sports in high school or college, then women had to be able to play them too. And now there's a big push to make sure that women can play with men in those sports. Because we have to be fair to people. And if there's a girl who's good enough to play shortstop for the Red Sox, then she, she should be able to do it. And it hasn't happened yet, but it's moving that way. Um, I noticed a news story where a school is considering kicking a boy off of the girls' field hockey team because he's too fast. Um, but he has to be able to play on that team because there's not a boys' field hockey team. And so to make it fair, got to open it up to boys to play on the girls' field hockey team. Uh, you may have noticed the push for fairness in your kids' sports leagues. Uh, 
Um, some of the leagues don't keep score anymore because we don't want any losers. Fairness has extended even to winning. Everybody's got to be a winner. And everybody gets a trophy too, all right? Because if there's no score, then everybody's a winner. Everybody gets a trophy. And, and so we naturally start to get comfortable with the idea that things should be fair. It's not fair for one person to have more money than another person. And so socialism starts to take root. And communism starts to take root. And by the way, if you study history at all, here's what you'll figure out. Since the invention of sin, communism has never worked one time. Not once, ever. Socialism has never worked either. Now, in Acts, they have this thing called communism, which actually did work because the Spirit of God kind of initiated, hey, that guy needs a coat, and they need some food, and that, that has always worked. Um, and by the way, charity, as far as the local church goes, it still works today. If you see that somebody in the church needs some shoes, go buy them some. If you see that somebody's looking hungry, I'm not seeing many out there today, but if you see somebody needs some food, maybe they need a trip to Golden Corral just to make things better in their life. Um, <coughs> then that's the way that we do things in the local church. Um, but the government's probably got the wrong idea not to get on a soapbox here. But you know that the government requires $3 to give $1 away? It's, it's a known, proven fact. The bureaucracy, it, it takes $3 to give out $1. That's not very good efficiency, but we have to make everything fair. Thanks to Franklin Roosevelt and Lyndon B. Johnson for that. Um, not to get off on the history soapbox, but let's keep going thinking about this fairness. It's not fair that he gets a bigger piece of pie than I do. You ever have that one, right? <coughs> if you have two teenage boys at your house, <coughs> several years ago I did a, a funeral for a family. Um, the mother had passed away, and, and so I was meeting all of these grown men who were in their 40s and early 50s. And I said, are there any stories I should know uh, about the family? And they had this story. When they were all in their 40s, they were at Thanksgiving dinner. And one of them reached in to get the biggest piece of pie. And his brother took his fork and actually stabbed his hand to where the fork went into the meat of his hand and stuck there. Now that's how serious this family was about fairness. And I'm sure that there may be a family out there where it's got to be fair. It's not really fair that one person gets body scanned by the TSA, but another doesn't. And usually the one who gets body scanned is my grandmother, who's 91. <laughs> right? So, so we're kind of trying to figure those things out. Um, it's not fair to judge politicians by results. You judge them by their speeches and whether or not they appear to be compassionate. That's how you have to be fair to them. If they appear to be compassionate, then they mean well, and so we should treat them well and vote for them again. But don't judge their results. Um, and it's not fair to profile people based upon religion or race or age. Right? That's another hot-button issue. 
And so it's just got to be fair, Pastor. It's got to be fair. And if anyone was ever fair, it was Jesus, right? Well, actually, no. He wasn't. And we're going to look at it in this passage. Fairness ended in Eden. Jesus modeled for us this principle. And it's a great principle that we're going to use all six weeks of this series. Do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. Go back to the passage with me. And I want to look through this again. You may not have caught this the first time through. Look at verse number three. At the pool of Bethesda, at this place, lay a great multitude. Now, I don't know how many it takes to be a multitude, but I would guess that it takes more than five, more than ten. I, I don't know what you consider a multitude to be. But I would think if we're going to talk about multitudes, it's going to have to be a big number, right? Um, in the Bible, when multitudes showed up on the hillside, Jesus fed them with a miraculous feeding. And the number of men was 5,000. I don't know how many sick people there were at this pool, but it was a multitude. And they had big problems. Impotent, blind, halt, withered. And they were all waiting for this healing lottery. And apparently the custom was that every once in a while, just by whim or fancy, don't really know what happened, but an angel would come down and touch the water. And the first person who could get in the pool after the water got touched was healed. And man, there were a multitude of people waiting for this healing. Tragic thing is, there's a lot of people who are waiting on eternal life that way. They think that it's going to happen by some fluke. That an angel is going to come down and touch them and give them eternal life. That's just not the case. And so Jesus shows up at this pool. And there's a multitude of people there who needed healing. And yet we read the passage, Jesus apparently only healed one. Just one. Now what you think about that for a minute. Jesus shows up. Please process this in your head. Jesus shows up. There are a multitude of sick people. A multitude of people who need heal. And Jesus heals one. Just one. Let's talk about it in your notes, the fairness factor. We've already talked a little about fairness, and let's look at it in this first part of the message. Um, Jesus wasn't fair. He could have healed them all. Certainly, he had the power. He could have helped everyone. He could have changed the water to wine at eight weddings, but he only did it at one. He could have talked to the group at the well, but he talked to the woman at the well. Do you know, Jesus could have chosen 36 disciples, or 34, or 27, but he chose 12. Why those 12, and why only 12, and why this, and why that, and God could have had five nations to be his chosen people. But he only chose one, Israel. God could have made me taller. 
but it's unfortunate he did. Um, God's not fair. And if we're going to follow Christ, we can't be fair either. And so let's just abandon the fairness factor right here and now so that we can truly affect lives. And, and we'll get into how all of this works. Um, it kind of stems from this thought. You remember back when you were in school and you're going through a growth spurt? It happened to me one day. Um, and you may want to, you may have wanted to because you were just starving. You went up and you asked the lunch lady. You said to the lunch lady, could I have an extra cookie? And here's what she said to you. You know, if I give you an extra cookie, then I'll have to give everybody an extra cookie. And so I can't give you an extra cookie, little Cole or little Scott, because if I give you one, then I have to give everybody one, right? And that's what the lunch lady said to you. And you're thinking, no, you don't. Just slip it into my napkin. I'm starving here. But the lunch lady didn't budge. She was firm in her resolution. Now, unfortunately, our lunch lady, just she'll give them whatever they want. Mrs. Rocklitz has such a big, merciful heart that if they come up and say, Mrs. Rocklitz, I'm starving. I, don't, I know I only ate two plates full already, but can I please have more? Okay, we'll give you some more. Um, so she's already learned this principle of not being fair. As I said, though, in the introduction, society has this norm. Fairness. Equality for all. And in certain things, that is true. We are all sinners. Equally. We're all sinners. Every one of us. There's not a person on the planet who's not a sinner. And so that's an equal thing. We all need a Savior. Um, Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. And so he's offered salvation to all. We can all be redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, The U.S. Constitution talks about some things that we have been endowed with by our Creator. You guys remember these from from a civics class. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness and the college education, right? It's the last one. It's been added in recent years and nobody knew about it. Um, No, life, liberty, some of you guys are having no fun today. I don't know what's going on. I'm working it here. I'm trying, but you're not not with me. Um, Life, Liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And and certainly, those are things that we all have in common. Um, But we have this crisis of fairness. Because people think, if I do it for you, then I'll have to do it for everyone. And we have a natural sense that things have to be fair. But it's just not true. And so, we have a fairness factor. But then we have the fear factor. Look over at Matthew 25. Matthew chapter 25. And if you were in life group today, you may have covered a couple verses out of this passage. Matthew chapter 25. We often call this the parable of the talents. Jesus gave this special parable where he gave out different numbers of gifts and different types of gifts 
to different people. Matthew 25, verse 14. For the kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country, who called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods. And unto one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to every man according to his several ability, and straightway took his journey. So we've all heard this before. The master gave one five, and one two, and one one, and it was all based on their ability. It wasn't fair. It wasn't fair. Jesus could have given you $5 million. Now, I won't ask you to show your hands as to how many of you he's given the $5 million to already. Right? Um, possibly you're still waiting on that $5 million uh, for, by whatever method. But you might remember that the one who got the five talents, he went out and he made five more off of them right away. The one who received two talents, he went out and he gained two more talents. But the one who received the single talent, he had a fear factor. And let's look at it in the scripture. Verse number 18. But he that had received one went and digged in the earth and hid his Lord's money. And here was his explanation once the day of reckoning came. Look at verse 24. Then he which had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew thee that thou art an hard man, reaping where thou hast not sown and gathering where thou hast not strawed. And I was afraid and went and hid thy talent in the earth. Lo, there thou hast, it is thine. So the guy who had won, he was afraid. And it was the master's fault. Because the master was a hard man and he was austere. And he expected something. He expected a return on what he had given. Do you know that God, our master, if you're a child of God, God expects something in return. God has given something to every person in this room. And he expects something back. And yet we have fear. I'm afraid of failing. I'm afraid of the master's disappointment. I'm afraid of losing. I'm afraid of the load it will create for me if I use God's gift to his glory. And so I've decided to bury the talent. I've decided and I've chosen to help no one. That's one of the options we have today. Choose to help no one. Think about that option for a minute. Uh, I have to admit that, that if I really tried to process this, that I would have to say there are a lot of Christians who are quite a bit like this guy. It's not that they don't care about helping anyone. I mean, look, if you don't care about helping anyone, you would really need to check up on your status as a follower of Christ. Because we should at least care about helping people. Um, we should have a heart for God to that extent. But, but many are afraid that if they try to help, that they're going to get overwhelmed. And they'll, they'll end up having to help everyone. Like if I pray for one missionary, I'll have to pray for all of them. And so I'm just not going to pray for any of them. Um, if, if I give above my tithe to one ministry in the church, 
that I'll feel obligated to help them all. So I'm just going to hold off on my giving. If I go on the nursery schedule, I'm going to feel obligated um, to, to help the families of those children who have needs. So because of fear, I've chosen to help no one. I'm just going to hide my spiritual gift from the body of Christ and remain unaware of what God is doing in the kingdom. I'm going to play it safe. There's a fear factor that we all can have. We all can be afraid to use what God's given us for his glory. It's easily done. It happens to all of us. You know, sometimes it's fun to be unaware. I don't know if you have a cell phone. You guys have a cell phone? How many of you 11-year-olds have a cell phone? Um, just about everybody has a cell phone these days, right? The easier question would be, just, just be courageous and proud about this. How many of you do not own a cell phone? Put it up there. All right, God bless you. Wow. Wow, goodness. <laughs> At least eight or ten people here in the room um, do not own a cell phone. But if you do own a cell phone, and you're attached to it, and some people are addicted to it, and literally, if you try to take it away, it'd be curtains for you. Um, but if you're so attached to it, sometimes it's fun just to go sit on top of a mountain where you get no signal and not be attached to it, to be unaware. But then we're worried about what we're missing, right? And when we come back down from the mountain, the first thing we do, turn the cell phone on. What did I miss? Who may have sent me a text message? What Facebook update may I have missed? What Twitter feed did I miss? What's going on in the world? And uh, sometimes to be blissfully unaware is just wonderful. Um, my little niece, Brianna, um, just turned five months old. And I love to watch her because she is so unaware. She is so happy to see everyone. She doesn't know what kind of tools we are yet. Uh, she has no idea what our issues are. She has no idea what the national debt is yet. She has not been cursed with that information. She has no idea about politics. She has no, no idea about TV preachers. She has no idea about all of these huge things that come into play in our lives. She's blissfully unaware. And if we don't watch it, that's kind of what we want when it comes to burdens, problems, issues. I'm not going to help anybody because I choose to remain unaware. And what it really is is a fear factor. But then there's also a fatigue factor. And to see this, I, I want to go to Galatians chapter 6. On the other side of this coin of fear is fatigue. Look at Galatians chapter 6. And once again, a familiar passage. I'm sure that many of you will be aware of, of the verse that we read, of the verses that we read. Galatians chapter 6. And verse number 2. Look what it says. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, look at the wording here. Bear ye one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Normally when you help people, you help them one at a time. So the scripture's kind of plain on this. Now go down to verse number 9. 
And let us not be weary in well-doing. For in due season we shall reap if we faint not. As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. I don't know if you've ever heard of burnout, but there's spiritual burnout too. Do sermons seem like tired, old reruns to you? Please do not answer that out loud. Right? Get me into big trouble. Um, do, does your mind and your mouth switch to automatic pilot during the hymn and spiritual song and praise song singing? Do you get a lot more excited about your favorite sports team than you are about being a disciple of Jesus? Do you find yourself leaving church criticizing the sermon and the song leader instead of searching for what you can learn and how you can implement it in your life? Do those smiling, happy Christians just plain annoy you? Like, what are you so happy about? Right? Even at church, how could you be so happy? What's your deal? Wipe that smile off your face. Um, are, are you just plain tired of the sometimes empty routine of Bible study and devotions and prayers and ministry? And if that's the case, you may be suffering from some type of spiritual burnout. You say, I don't believe in spiritual burnout. Um, when, when you think of burnout, you envision a variety of images. And for me, it's kind of like the burnout shell of a building. There's nothing left. But burnout isn't limited to old buildings. Um, it happens in business executives, in classroom teachers who wear out by the week after spring break, and they're burnout, and they're just going through the motions. It happens in marriage partners from time to time. We've been married for, goodness gracious. You remember, how many were here last week? You guys remember what happened last week? All right, I won't refresh your memory. We've been married, I'm going to get this right. We've been married for almost 18 years. And uh, what, what I find is that every once in a while we go through these types of things in marriage where we just kind of burn out and we're going through the motions and we're having dinner and we're taking care of the kids and we're not connecting. And uh, sometimes that happens in relationships. It happens with students who show up at school, but they sleep through class. It happens through preachers who do recycle messages. And it happens with the children of God. Many spiritual giants in the Bible um, actually suffered spiritual burnout. I probably didn't use that exact word in the scripture. But uh, there's a prophet, Jeremiah... Jeremiah was so tired of trying to get people to listen to the truth, and nobody was listening. They had hearts of stone, and he felt like he was carrying the burden of truth for the whole nation. And so Jeremiah basically said, that's it. I'm done with preaching. But the next verse says that he couldn't stop. It was like a fire in his bones. He couldn't quit. He had to keep going. And, uh, but he faced that. Moses was carrying the weight of an entire nation on his shoulders in the wilderness. He went to God and said, God, what do you expect from me? I can't carry this load anymore. And so God gave him some help and gave us some elders to help him. Elijah fights 450 false prophets on the top of Mount Carmel. And then he got the I'm the only one who cares syndrome. 
that we sometimes get, right? I'm the only one who cares about this marriage. I'm the only one who cares to keep this family on track. I'm the only one in my life group who really cares about people. I'm the only one in the church who wants to see this done. We all get those things. And, and we can become weary. Elijah was being chased then by um, Jezebel. He had just called fire down from heaven. And now Jezebel's after him. And in 1 Kings 19, he says to God, It's enough, God. It is enough. Oh, now take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he got burnt out. You remember an angel came and fed him? And he went on the strength of that meal for 40 days and 40 nights. And since that time, dietitians have been looking for the food that he ate because it would start the new dietary superfood revolution. Um, but I don't think we're going to get that manna until we get to heaven. So you take these things, though, they're, they're happen with the heroes of the faith. And if the heroes of God's word could become weary in well-doing, then you can too. And so you say, look, I'm willing to help, but I'm worn out. I feel like I have to help everyone. I have to be fair in my ministry. You know, it's interesting that we have responsibility. Just mentioned it in Galatians 6.2. We have a responsibility to bear other people's burdens. And yet, that's exactly what wears us out. We're supposed to bear other people's burdens, but sometimes it wears us completely out. We said earlier that Jesus offered eternal life to every person. But he also had the power to physically heal all those who needed it. He had the power to raise every person who ever died back from the dead. Yet he didn't do it. He modeled what he wants us to do. See, I can't help everybody. It's impossible. I can't help everybody. But I can help somebody. And if we live by the principle Jesus gave us, the fear factor and the fatigue factor aren't going to stop us from living out our kingdom purposes. And that brings us to the fruit factor, which I'd like to close with. The fruit factor. We read in Galatians 6 verse 9 that in due season we shall reap if we faint not. And it's the fruit factor. When I do for one what I wish I could do for everyone, I do the most good. It really can change someone else's world. By God's power, it can change someone else's world and my world at the same time. And over the next six weeks, I want to talk to you about ways to overcome the fairness crisis in your life. Here's the number one way to do it. Don't be fair. Don't be fair. Abandon the idea that you can do it all. God wants you to connect with a somebody and get busy for him. Do you know the entire world would know Jesus Christ right now if Christians would just connect with one somebody? But most Christians who receive Jesus Christ as children or as teens or in their 20s or in their 30s never connect with one person. 
about eternal life. That's what statistics tell us. The great majority of Christians never connect with one person about Jesus Christ. It's a tragedy. And it's because we think, boy, if I connect with one, I'm going to have to talk to all seven billion. But that's not how God set it up, right? It's not how God set it up. And so God wants you to connect with somebody and get busy for him. When God has gifted you or enabled you or provided for you to help, do it. You're going to reap fruit beyond your imagination. So let me give you three practical things as we close. And uh, I heard Andy Stanley say these three things at the end of the message, and I just thought I'd throw them in here and give him credit for that, but they're terrific. Um, Number one, go deep instead of wide. Go deep instead of wide. Instead of doing a poor job of trying to help 10 people at once, go deep in helping one. Now, some of you can help more than one person at one time. But you know that for most of us, we just can't do it. For most of us, one is about our limit on how many we can help at once. Um, and, And what we think is that won't be fair to the rest of them. The other nine, they'll miss out on my mentoring. Excuse me, have you been here for the first 24 pages of the sermon? We're not trying to be fair. We're trying to change the world for Christ. We're trying to be Christ followers. And so go deep in influencing a life. One of the ways to do that at Centennial is through one-on-one discipleship. You might get overwhelmed by teaching a class of 15 people But you could go deep in connecting with one. And so go deep instead of one. Another thing is this. Go long-term instead of short-term. Go long-term instead of short-term. Take somebody under your wing for the long haul. Pray for and correspond with the missionary family for a year at a time or two years at a time. Get involved for a long time with somebody. Find a young person. If you're getting older and your kids are growing, maybe you don't have any kids, find a young person that you can love and mentor and befriend at this church from 6th grade to 7th grade to 8th grade all the way up. And you know what? You'll have a long-term, lifelong connection with that person. But it's only if we go long-term instead of short-term. Jesus invested three years of his life into just 12 guys. And one of them turned out to be a betrayer. You guys probably remember the story, right? But the rest of those knuckleheads, through the Holy Spirit's power, turned the world upside down. That's what it says in Acts. These were fishermen, right? They did not grow up as public speakers. They were not great businessmen or administrators. And yet, the mentoring of Jesus Christ in their lives, along with Holy Spirit power, caused them to turn the world upside down. And when we go long-term instead of short-term, we turn the world upside down. The third one is this. Go time, not just money. Go time, not just money. In life, especially as you grow older, it can get easier to pay money than to give time. 
I, I don't want to volunteer, I don't want to help, but I'll give toward it. Do you know time is your most valuable earthly good? Invest your time in someone. I could tell you how to be a failure as a parent. Try to buy your kids affection. Try to pay for their affection with money, and you'll ruin them. You'll ruin your relationship with them. But God wants you to connect. It always cracks me up. The last thing on the notes, I hear all the zippers. Last, I'm not done, okay? I could go for another hour if you want me to. It's just a pet peeve, sorry. If you just zipped, I apologize. I just kind of lost my train of thought. Um, but, but time, time is your most valuable asset on the planet. It's one that you could give away. If you could do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. God has clearly stated in his word that he's gifted every believer with at least one spiritual gift. If you want to know more about that, do a Bible study on Romans 12. It's fascinating. If you're not involved in the kingdom, it's not a matter of gifting. A lot of people say, well, I'd help if God had only given me a spiritual gift. He has. You have one. And so if you're not involved in the kingdom, it's a matter of choice. If you're helping no one but yourself, that's a choice. And it's time for you to get out your spiritual shovel and go dig your gift back out of the ground and use it for God's glory. Some of you are so willing to help. Bless your hearts. You are worn out by helping. You're worn out because you try to help so much. And I promise you that I know what that feels like. I had to learn a hard lesson that I'm not called to be fair. No matter how much or little I can do for folks, they have the potential to get their feelings hurt. They do. It's unfortunate. Um, and they think thoughts like this, I wish the pastor cared as much about my problem as he did about that person's. I wish he'd cared to ask about my prayer need as much as he asked about hers. And, uh, and so I've learned I can't, I can't be fair. It's impossible. I can never win 100% human approval. Neither can you. And that's why it's time for all of us to set aside fairness and pick up the model that Jesus gave at Bethesda. He helped one. Just one. And I know you're already thinking, but I can help more than one. Yeah, but start with one. It's kind of like the deal that we do for our New Year's resolution. We get all in this spiritual mode. And the last Sunday of the year, God, this is going to be the year. I'm going to read this in the Bible. And man, I'm going to go 12 chapters a day in my Bible reading. And there we go, man, January 1st. And then January 2nd, we miss it. Right? And the 12 chapters a day plan is out the window. And January 3rd, we kind of think, oh, man, I missed it. January 4th, we're like, oh, I missed it two days. I'm way behind now. January 5th, we say, you know what? Next year, I'm going to start my Bible reading. Next year, I'm going to make my Bible reading count. And that's the way it is with helping people. We say, boy, I'm going to help 10 people this week. How about this? Take one bite at a time. Help one person. This week. Over the next five weeks, 
we're going to talk about specific ways to get involved in caring for one person like you wish you could care for everybody. There's probably not a person in this room today that could take everybody here to a restaurant today and spend time with them or to do it tonight after the service or sometime this week have lunch with them. You couldn't take everybody, but you could take one. You probably can't remember the names of every person in your section today. Some of you maybe could because you're geniuses, but you probably can't. But what if you found out the name of one person? What if you could make a difference in one person's life? There's, a, there's an old story, and you, everybody in here has probably heard it before, about a little boy who was down on the beach, and a, he was looking, and, and the clams were dying, and he's throwing them back in. And an old man walked by, and he said to the little boy, he said, little boy, give up. You can't save all the clams. How could you possibly make a difference? Look at this beach. It's covered by them. And the little boy picked up and said, I made a difference for that one. And he threw it. And I made a difference for that one. And he threw it. And I made a difference for that one. And you know, if we would get the mentality that God wants us to help one person this week, we could change the city of Caldwell. We really could, because think about if all 100 and however many, 80 in this room and 80 in the other building, what if, what if all of us decided this week, I'm going to change one person. I'm just going to be involved in one person's life. We could change this city, and God could change this state, and he can change the world. You say it can never happen. I don't know if you've ever read the book of Acts, but I hope you read it this week. God changed the known world because they were willing to help one. Like they wished they could help everyone. Let's bow in prayer. As we bow today, with, with your heads bowed respectfully in prayer to God, there could be 